party tonight. What? TV party tonight. Oh, we got nothing better to do than watch TV and have a couple of brews. Don't want to talk about anything else. We don't want to know. We're dedicated yes. to our favorite shows. Oh, my tickets. Everybody loves Hypnotoes. Scary Dog. Dancing at Blurred Ball. Futurama. Good evening. You are listening to a Rad Religion Broadcasting <clears throat> Premier Podcast TV party tonight. I'm stressed out. Your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. <clears throat> Gotta clear my throat. Let me clear my throat. And our favorite show tonight is Homicide Life on the Street Season 5. Brought to you by the good people at Baltimore Pictures, Reeves Entertainment, MCEG Sterling Incorporated, Fatima Productions, NBC Productions, NBC Studios, and NBC Universal Television Distribution. Um, we're doing something a little bit different with this TV party tonight. Uh, first of all, let me bring my co-host here, my best buddy, my primary partner. <laughs> Mr. Jesse Starcher, how do you do, sir? Oh, my goodness, Mark Radlich. Boy, oh, boy, this is going to be a fun project. I am excited, especially where we're starting out. Where This is kind of a nostalgia trip for me, uh, where mm -hmm. we're starting out here. So, right. yeah, man, this is going to be a good time. Let me let me quick explain what the deal here is. All right. Dealio. So I came to you a couple months back. I said, hey, I'm going to be wrapping up the Mania of WrestleMania, and I like doing the sort of these series and a lot of people have asked me in the past like you talk so much about the wire how come you've never done a tv party on it how come you've never done a tv party on this how come you've never done a tv party on that really really quickly we started doing tv parties because of the marvel netflix shows yeah because <clears throat> they were you know ancillary to the marvel movies uh the, the mcu movies so it was like okay well you know in addition to all of these mcu movies iron man captain america thor now we're doing daredevil uh, Power Man, Iron Fist, and Jessica Jones. We should talk, and then eventually Punisher. We should talk about those too. And then, then you know, and then occasionally, like somebody like Jesse or somebody else would be like, "I like this show. We should talk about it. Let's talk about Black Mirror. Let's talk about the uh, the Orville. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that." Sean and I had done a couple of seasons of Orange Is the New Black, right. um, you know, and so it just the more and more we started doing things, the more t TV shows we would add to this. But we were starting to do things that were contemporary like occasionally we would look back and do something like community mm -hmm. or we would look at the last season of game of thrones because we hadn't reviewed it before but we would go back and kind of talk about the whole thing leading up to the final season stuff like right that. um but I, I i thinking about it i was like you know i really do i'd like to spend an hour talking about these different david simon shows and then a thought occurred to me why don't we do an extended series looking at one season each of everything David Simon is uh, credited with producing or, you know, being a story editor on something, yep. something that really has his name on it. Right. And as it turns out, if you look at David Simon's Wikipedia page, there's a whole list of everything that's credited to him, including the major things like the wire, the deuce, Treme and so on. So I says to Jesse, I says, Hey, Jesse, Hey, Jesse. What if we spend one Wednesday a month looking at a every season on this list that's on David Simon's Wikipedia page? And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Because I think like you're in like the middle of, a, of uh, the wire watch, right? 
Yeah, yeah. We stopped at season four, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's five seasons of that, right? Yes. Yeah, I think we're I think we're in the middle of season four, and that when that's been forever since we picked that back up. Right. So now I get to re I'm going to re-experience it with this. And I don't think you'd watch the other ones. Like I don't think you'd watch The Corner. I know you nope. never watched Show Me a Hero, no, nope. um, or Generation Kill or anything like that. I haven't even seen Generation Kill. No. Um, I've seen The Corner. I've seen The Wire. I've seen Treme, and I've seen Show Me a Hero. And then they have this new one that's coming up, um, starring John Bernthal, which we're gonna uh, we own this city. It's the name of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <coughs> so, point being. We're starting a series, and I'm simply calling it From the Corner to the Deuce, the great works of David Simon. And I keep mentioning his name. Who is David Simon? For those of you who don't know, uh, David Simon worked for the Baltimore Sun City Desk for 12 years, between 82 and 95. He wrote the book <clears throat> Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets in 1991, and he co-wrote The Corner, A Year in the Life of an Inner City Neighborhood in 1997 with Ed Burns. The former book was the basis for the NBC series Homicide, Life on the Street from 93 to 99, on which Simon served as a writer and producer. Simon adapted the latter book into the HBO miniseries The Corner. So uh, David Simon was a journalist. He wrote those two books, as we mentioned. And Ed Burns, I believe, was a police officer whom he teamed with, and they were responsible for the way they were responsible for the wire and the way that the wire works specifically is you had this journalist and this ex, this ex-journalist and this ex-cop sort of collaborating on what what does a real detective unit look like mm -hmm. um and so i wanted to really examine this guy's body of work because he's not just a television producer he's not just a writer or an ex-journalist dave simon really is one of like the great cultural editorialists of our time mm -hmm. like he has really got a keen eye for what is going on in the world and, and it, like procedurally culturally aesthetically i think david simon speaks a lot of truth i like i like a lot of what he has to say and i don't always necessarily agree with his take but i like what he's saying in the way he's saying it mm -hmm. so how much of david david simon were you even aware of well, this is it right here. Homicide life on the street, apparently, but I didn't even know he was tied to it in any way. I didn't mm -hmm. associate his name with it in any way. Uh, and I will say that this is the first police like drama that I remember actually watching and enjoying as mm -hmm. uh, a young adult. You know, as a kid, you were probably exposed to Hill Street Blues or, you know, Law and Order, maybe. Um, but Homicide was one of the first shows that me and the wife were like, okay, let's sit down and let's watch homicide together. But you know, what's going to happen next on the next episode. It was like our first ever real police drama that we enjoyed. Um, so yeah, didn't know much about David Simon there. You started talking about the wire and I was finally like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot and check that out. Uh, and I've really enjoyed what I had seen so far of that as well. The rest of those other shows, just like you said, never, I never had a chance to either watch them or even knew they existed. Some of those I was like, I had no clue, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I was at. I followed homicide all the way from season one, all the way up to the end. Um, and he came on here, obviously. That's what I was going to ask you. Five. So did you, now, did you watch homicide when it was contemporaneous or did you find it later on? And if so, later like, on. what, okay. So what brought you to homicide? Cause I, 
<clears throat> I think just because I've read a lot about David Simon, I knew it was there, but I've never watched a single season of Homicide Life on the Street until we decided to do this series. Really? Okay. Okay. So uh, the only, only thing I can really remember is the uh, right after me and Mindy got married, mm-hmm. uh, we would we had this, you know, we no kids, no nothing. We were just in this small apartment and it was time for bed. You know, we'd go to bed. We had a TV in our bedroom. We'd turn on A&E. I think A&E ran, I think it was A&E ran reruns of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we started watching it pretty faithfully. Uh, this was 98. So we came in uh, at the very tail end of the series, but was watching the reruns. So catching up on what was going on in the reruns that they were showing. Um, and uh, so that was 98, 99, maybe even 2000. But anyway, because um, we got that at the apartment in, I want to say it was 99, 2000. So that was right at the end of Homicide. But anyway, so yeah, we're watching that. And then we we just kind of gravitated towards it. That's kind of what, you know, what brought us there, brought us to the Homicide dance, I guess you'd say. Uh, reruns. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what Homicide is. Uh, Homicide Life on the Street is an American police drama television series chronicling the work of a fictional version of the Baltimore Police Department's Homicide Unit. It ran for seven seasons, 122 episodes on NBC from January 31st, 1993 through May 21st, 1999, and was succeeded by Homicide the Movie in 2000, which served as the series finale. The series was created by Paul Antonagio and based on David Simon's book, as we mentioned before. Many of the characters and stories used throughout the show were based on events depicted in the book. So we are going to start with season five. Now, the reason why is, again, as I look at the Wikipedia page, the, in, under the filmography, under producer, it says television shows for which David Simon has a producing credit. So he is named as the story editor for season five, and then he is a producer for season six and season, season seven before he moves on to doing The Corner and then The Wire, et cetera, et cetera. So that is where we start tonight. Homicide. Life on the Street, Season 5. Uh, and this, I'm going to pitch to you in just a sec, uh, Jesse, but th- there's a I think there's a significant change in the cast from um, Seasons 1 through 4 to Season 5. Uh, this particular season aired uh, from September 20th, 1996 to May 16th, 1997 and contained 22 episodes. Um, a new opening sequence debuted at the start of the season, including elements of a police investigation and growing chatter of radio transmissions behind the music theme. In addition, pictures of the actors were displayed alongside their names for the first time. The sequence ends with the ringing of the squad room phone and a voice answering, Homicide. 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 <laughs> Two new characters appeared during the season, Chief Medical Examiner Juliana Cox the and Detective Terry Stivers, a recurring character portrayed by guest star Tony Lewis. A narcotics officer who works with homicide to bring down the local drug kingpin Luther Mahoney. All right, so I know you wanted to kick off the discussion with the end of season four, so let's get into it. Yeah, really, real quick. I mean, you covered a good bit of it here. Uh, there's a few things that you got to know about season four because we're going, we're jumping right into season five. Who starts at season five for crying out loud? Well, <laughs> folks, that's us, we're going to do that, but I want to kind of give you up to speed on what happened at the end of season four. So, in season four. Uh, we had you talked about some of the people that showed up in season five in season four that was uh, Mike Kellerman first showed up there. J.H. Uh, Brody, which is the documentarian, uh, the documentary filmmaker Brody shows up in that season. Uh, K. Howard, Sergeant K. Howard shows up in season four. Luther Mahoney's first appearance is in season four. Uh, Stu Garrity, which that name 
put a pin in that because that's going to show up at the end of this season. Uh, he's the uh, he was a, a, apparently a, a beat cop, I believe, and then he's become a detective, uh, which shows up at the end of season five. Uh, we do have some, some final appearances, but do have some, they do reoccur in this season. Uh, there is Detective Megan Russert. Okay, mm -hmm. she I, we see her at the end of this season, but she was a mainstay throughout season four. And here's the thing: she was played by. Oh my goodness, I had her name here. I want to say it was. Um, uh, let me see. Let me go back to that Wikipedia real quick. I want to say it starts with an I. I swear it starts with an I. Isabella Hoffman. So Isabella Hoffman, Megan Russert, uh, in season four, she's actually married or well, I shouldn't say married. She's partnered with Daniel Baldwin as not the character. That is her partner. And she becomes pregnant with Daniel Baldwin's baby. Uh, so if you remember at the end of this season, we talk a little bit about Daniel's character while she is off of the show because she becomes pregnant with Daniel's baby, which I think if I remember reading correctly, there was a love affair between their two characters too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to think about that. Uh, but yeah, Megan Russert uh, was in most of season four. She leaves. Now let's talk about how we're getting into season five post Pimbleton stroke. Okay. Did I now, did you have a chance to watch that? I know I sent it to you. But anybody can go out there, find you the YouTube clip of uh, Frank Pimbleton having a stroke in the box. Uh, let's say that I did, but why don't you describe it for everyone? Okay. Well, it was some of the most – I've never seen anybody have a stroke, so I don't okay. know. So, hang on. Let's talk about who, who Pimbleton is. Okay, yeah. Frank Pimbleton, portrayed by Andre Brower. Uh, he is one of the main characters since season one. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually the, the, most recently and most famously the captain in Brooklyn nine, -Nine. captain Holt. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Brooklyn nine, nine. Uh, so it's usually him and Tim Bayless, uh, that the, the show usually focuses around. Uh, they were the main stars there at the beginning. So at the end of season four, the final episode, uh, Frank is in the box and he's interrogating somebody. So, you know, when we're talking about this police procedural, it's a homicide unit. They're, they're going out, they're finding perpetrators who have committed homicide and they're bringing them in, trying to get a confession. So the way that they do that is they put them in the box, <laughs> what they call the box, which is this, you know, this brick laid room, you got the light. It's almost just like you think it is an interrogation room where they are drilling you to try to find out and try and get you to confess to something that you did. So if anything can be said about Frank Pimbleton, if you get if Frank Pimbleton gets somebody in the box, he is going to do whatever he can to try and get that confession out of somebody within mm -hmm. the bounds of the law. He is intense. His character is intense. And what we see at the end of that final episode is he suffers a stroke in the middle of a interrogation. Uh, and it is, I don't know. I've never seen anybody have a stroke before but I'm certain that it's not pretty. And the way Andre Brower uh, portrays the stroke happening, I mean, he grabs his head, he's screaming, he starts seizing, he falls in the middle of things. I mean, it's, it, you almost could say, well, boy, that's overacted, but you don't, I mean, it's, it's probably, it's probably, he's probably done his research. Trust me. He's a good actor. Um, but one of the things I wanted to say was this he was about to he's he was about done at the end of season four. Like he felt like the Pimbleton character had run its course and he's done. He he wants to leave the show. And then they were like, 
how about we give Frank a stroke? And he was like, I'm in. So he sticks around for season five. Uh, so that's where we start season five. It's Pimbleton coming back to the squad after he had suffered his stroke uh, and uh, him trying to acclimate himself back into his duties. If he can get back on the street, because that's where he feels thing. That's where he feels most at, at home. But the rest of the squad now, uh, the, you know, G is like, nah, not happening. But anyway, I'll stop there. I want to, I want to uh, uh, actually turn it over to you here for our first part of season five. I know you had some things you wanted to talk about. I think the stroke would probably be best to start off here. Yeah. With. Let's, let's, let's just start off with that first, first episode. We're not going to go episode by episode through all of these because I think, I think there are at least two major plot lines that the most of the season deals with. And one is Pembleton's recovery from the stroke and how it affects him, how it affects him in the squad room, how it affects him in his marriage, which I definitely need to talk about. Mm. But the other one is, I can't remember the character's name. Kellerman. Kellerman. Um, he is under investigation for bribery in the arson unit. And there's a large portion of season five that deals with that. And while at the end, spoilers, he um, he is absolved of any guilt, it weighs heavy on him. Um, I didn't get a chance to finish the entire season. Does he leave at the end of season five? Because I think at some point he becomes a private detective. Right. Right. Yeah. He, and it's not the end of season five. He's okay. still there season six. So you get to enjoy more Kellerman mm -hmm. uh, season six. Okay. But he definitely thinks about quitting. Like he, he threatens to at least once or twice. There's an episode with him and his brothers where they like are trying to get him to go to Miami, which is wildly amusing. Right. Um, we have to talk about him on the houseboat where right. basically it's, it's almost like a, like a, a two actor, one act play uh, that deals with him contemplating suicide. So yeah, dude. Right. So let's, let's dial it back. Let's talk about Pembleton's return. Um, when we first, over the course of season five, uh, Pembleton does get better, but when we first see him <clears throat> and he's <clears throat> just coming back from the stroke, right? He's still having difficulty finding words. Like right. he sounds like me when I'm really tired. Um, <laughs> I mean, what is it? What does he call it? I, I can't remember. He calls something completely wrong uh, by the wrong name. Like, yeah. I think it's a coffee pot or something. And he calls yeah. it something by, by something totally different. And he's yeah, like, he's like, the he football. doesn't understand what the, the problem football, is. You know, he's <laughs> like pointing at the coffee pot, yelling football, like everybody else. Is right. It. Right. I don't think that was it, but it was something along those lines. Yeah. 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 It, it's a real, I mean, I understand why Andre Brower was like, okay, yeah, this is a challenge Yeah, because he definitely puts in the the acting for somebody trying to get back to normal after mm -hmm. suffering a stroke where they hit <clears throat> the stuttering yeah. like i you know he he is how brilliant is andre brower right dude you you like, cannot deny his acting ability no when you're seeing this. so good because you're right like <clears throat> sorry my i'm have to keep clearing my throat you're right he um so much of what he's doing like these like he obviously doesn't have a stutter. He doesn't have a stroke. Like if you've ever seen Brooklyn Nine Nine, you know he's a, an extremely well spoken, right. um, composed individual. That's how he pulls off that character and why it's so funny, especially opposite to the goofballs on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Right. You know, and so here he's like, I, 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 you know, like he's stuttering, like you said, and I, I reflected on this 
as I watch the season, like I got, I think I'm up to episode 16 or 17 and he's largely recovered and he has this right, especially his relationship with Bayless, like coming into it cold. I didn't know any of that, but it, you see him and Bayless over time. And when Bayless has finally had enough of him, it's because Andre Brower's character, Pendleton is really condescending. Mm. You know, he's so smart, but he's that smart, you know, like he knows he's smart and he right. thinks he's like the smartest guy in the room to the point where like everybody feels devalued by him right but here's the thing you you can't deny that he is the smartest guy in the room and i think that's what drives people nuts Mm -hmm. it's like he's largely right about his hunches yes yeah he is something that uh, he he has one purpose and he does that purpose well and he he knows it he knows he's a good detective he knows he's somebody who can get a good confession out of and i think that's what I like about this season mm-hmm. is the fact that he is struggling with the knowing that he cannot do his job. Number one, they won't let him do what he was doing because of you could die, sir. And you know, we don't want your death on the squad's hands here mm-hmm. because we just turned you loose back into doing what you were doing, your high pressure job. And it, that's just like you said, the arc that we get with him is him struggling. Number one, to get back to what he was doing before, but also the fact that he has to baby step his way there. Uh, You know, they, they have that one episode where he's doing the test. He's doing the shooting test with his gun, uh, with his, with his gun. Yeah. If you couldn't tell what he was shooting with, Um, but he's, he's doing that. uh, He's doing that range test. Keep going for one second. I'll be right back. All right, dude. So he's doing the range test. uh, And at that point there, he's, showing that he's struggling he cannot hit the target but it eats him alive that he is not able to do it he's faced with the facts he can see it that he is not able to do what he was able to do so perfectly before so watching him struggle and go through these tough times uh it really makes the Pimbleton arc throughout this season to see him go from just coming back onto the squad and making his way back to getting onto the streets. And that takes some, that takes some time. And if you were watching seasons one through four, you knew how well you wanted to, you, you knew that you wanted to see Pimbledon out there and mixing it up with some perps. You wanted to see him doing that. And you didn't get that. This was like, you know, they were, they sit down, take a seat, take some phone calls, actually make some phone calls for us, go get lunch. And you're like, Oh my gosh, Pimbleton. Well, that's that's just one of the aggravations of uh, of you know Pimbleton and it passed on to the uh, the viewer. So there's that. You also get to see him struggling in his home life, uh, as, uh, you know, going back and watching him have those fits of rage with his wife and his newborn baby. And you're kind of like, I was really legitimately concerned about the baby there at one point <laughs> because yeah. of how. You, you know, he was holding the baby and you're just like, oh, man, Pimbleton's going to do something because he's messed up in his brain. Something's going to happen. It's that, not going to be good. That's that the therapy session that he has. Like, he's just, he's talking about this now. Um, the therapy session that he has with the wife, the couple's counseling. Right. Um, he he talks about feeling helpless. That the stroke affected him so because you know you know what happens with the stroke you like you lose yeah feeling on the side of your body and 
you know, it eventually will come back with enough rehabilitation and time as it does with him. But, you know, in the beginning, you need a lot of assistance. You're dependent on people around you. And, right. You know, he, he mentions like I had to have people wipe my ass. Yeah. You know, imagine all that control that Frank had and now it's gone. Right. And that's what so he had to deal with. That's what you took the words right out of my mouth. Like he, um, you know, here he is, this big, strong, tough cop, you know, who's so smart and he's reduced to basically like an infant. Right. But he's an infant in an adult body with an adult brain with an adult's lifetime worth of experiences. Horrible. And I was thinking not, not to bring this down or derail the whole podcast from about personal stuff, but you know, as people who have been longtime listeners to the show have heard me talk about struggling with uh, cancer for two, uh, for a couple of years. And um, sorry. Uh, so I struggled, I, I got cancer in 2017, which means I was probably sick in 2016, but I, um, I got diagnosed in the beginning of 2017 and I didn't get better until probably the summer. But then in the summer, um, recovering from the chemotherapy, I was really sick for a while. And 2018, I was okay. I was just doing a lot of tests and, you know, it was always like, eh, it could be this, could be that. But for the most part, I got through 2018 relatively unscathed. 2019, um, I got a, I had a reoccurrence of cancer and then they did an experimental therapy with me and I had to stay home for three months. I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't do anything. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, that didn't work. And I was sick all through 2019 into 2020 where I almost died uh, because the cancer had gotten so big. I couldn't breathe. I would take two, three steps and I would be completely out of breath like I had run a marathon. Um, had it gotten any bigger, I probably would be dead by now. And as Jesse and Chris Armstrong know, there was a time where I was vomiting violently because of the tumor in my tumors in my lungs. The man still made the podcast. I was pissed. <laughs> they hung up on me. <laughs> <He> was. <laughs> I said, if you hang up on me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. <laughs> um, oh, shit. So they, I did a different kind of chemo this time around, a much harsher form of chemo. And I had no immune system going into uh, late summer, early fall, which then caused my gums to become infected, resulting in teeth being pulled, oh, which resulted in my jaw breaking. And because I had no immune system, my jaw was broken for a good six to seven months. Okay. <clears throat> which took me into 2020, the summer of 2021 where I was finally given a, an immunotherapy treatment that I had to self-inject. So like a heroin addict, I had to stick myself with a needle twice, two, three times a week in order to get my immune system to bounce back. So, yeah. so well, yeah, talking about taking things out of your control, yeah. the man with the schedule. <laughs> so <laughs> all of that too, I identified with, what's going on with Pembleton because he's sitting there like I was reduced to like an infantile state and I don't, you know, more of what I'm getting at. The wife said something to him and it was very similar to something that Melissa had said to me, which was something along the lines of sometimes it felt like it would be easier if you had died because it was hard to live with you like that. And what a, yeah. And what a, uh, how that made 
me feel and everybody else feel around you. No one could help you. You didn't want any help. You couldn't do anything for yourself. It was just, you know, what meanwhile, I, meanwhile, I'm fucking dying through all of that and don't have a lot of control over anything. And I don't know if you know this or not, but when you're that sick, it messes with your head. Oh, yeah. So maybe you're not always in the right state of mind. Oh, yeah. But hearing the wife of Pembleton say something familiar, like it had almost been better if you had died because at least then there would be some finality to it as opposed to having to struggle with you in this. And then you're so angry about it, which I related to because I was angry about it for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and then you try to get back to normal, you know, like he wants to come back. Like we talked about at the beginning of the season um, where he comes back to work and he just, he wants to be a cop again. And everyone's like, no, no, no. You know, and I think it's even the captain who's like sticking his neck out for him because he's like, you're not really in the best shape to be doing this, but I'm trying to do you a favor. And it's, and it's bad all around that. I, like I said, I remember going back to work and like, especially in the middle of chemo, like, you know, like having to run back and forth to the bathroom and trying to not shit all over myself. <laughs> you know, um, I remember one morning I was working in booking and I like sneezed, vomited and shit my pants all at the same time in booking. So it was hard to watch that. And then while I'm still with my, my wife and family, she leaves. And I, that was a gut punch. That was just absolutely heart wrenching. Right, dude. Right. Like she, like he, cause I was never necessarily as vehemently vocal as he is in that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, there's a, there's a level of like almost detest for her. Like, and I, and I kind of get it because sometimes when you're really, really smart and you're surrounded by people not so smart, you're it's, like, can you please like get to my level? And you're Frank's just mad ego. at him because they won't. Frank's ego. Uh, mm-hmm. I, he definitely has an ego. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, some of it's justifiable. Um, you know, he, that's powerful writing. Yeah. It really, really is. When you're thinking that, that this it is totally 96, hits me where I lives. Right, dude. 96, 97, I think is when this was. Uh, so mm-hmm. this was 96, I think, in these earlier episodes when they aired. But yeah, that's very, very powerful, very real. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, you know, I, I think that's why this series is uh, as lauded as it is, in my opinion. Right. Um, because when, when you see the Frank character and everything that he's going through, especially in this season. Yeah, I'm, it's great to see it's great to see that powerful writing on display mm-hmm. here. And that's, you know, taking it back to where we started with this and then we'll move on to something else. That's David Simon though. Right. You know, I think he didn't write all of these episodes, obviously. Um, a lot of them are written by Tom Fontana, who also worked on the wire. Yeah. There's Tom Fontana, Julie Martin, Henry Bromwell, um, James Yosh- uh, Yoshimura, no an episode by, I think we get an episode by Yafet Kodo in here too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like I think he writes uh, one of the later mm-hmm. ones. I don't know if you got to it yet. Eric uh, Overmeyer, he's in there. So like, I'm just looking at the stories by, not even like the teleplay part. One sec, what's up? Okay, I didn't know if there was something you wanted to tell me. No. Um, yeah, Yafet Kodo, uh, episode twenty. 
Yeah. So you, you'll get to that one. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, a, a, a lot of good stuff happens in this, and, but definitely the Frank Pimbleton character and everything that happens around him. Uh, uh, that is some of the finer parts of what happens in season five. I will mm-hmm. tell you when we start talking about Kellerman and his arc, now it's there's some powerful stuff that's happening there too. Yeah. But I've but, never been annoyed by more of a uh, uh, by a character more than right. Frank Keller. So, uh, excuse me, Kellerman. All right, so let's talk about that next. But before we do, you know, you talked about the writing and how great it is. Would have given it slightly more of an edge if they had used Grammarly. Maybe Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly cover. cover bleh corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. You download Grammarly today. Go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. All right, Jesse, explain in 50 words or more exactly what happened with Kellerman when we find him this season, and then we'll get into talking about it. Right? Yeah, so uh, Kellerman at this point he becomes like Mark said earlier, he becomes uh, under investigation for uh, taking bribes while he was in arson. So there is a rather poignant point that Kellerman is trying to make that he's good police. He's good police and he would never take bribes and he never did. And that's something that he cannot he can't believe other people would think he would do. That's where a lot of the aggravation for Kellerman comes from. Uh, it, number one, and he's also kind of a, a flirtatious jerk a lot of the times, too. He annoys me. Like and- He seemed like he got taken down a peg by the whole thing. Like, like he was sort of like a hotshot, young, you know, pith and vinegar detective. And then this happens, and he is just what whatever house of cards that ego was built on was completely yeah. shattered. A lot of pride Kellerman has in mm-hmm. doing the job and doing the job the way he believes it should be done. Mm-hmm. And when he's as he's going through this, I mean, it does start messing with his head. He starts realizing that the people that he's surrounded with may not believe he is as good a person as he knows he is. That is and a it, big part of it. Like, and again, I identify with him too because you know he's sitting there like <laughs> when he is absolved of guilt. And then he confronts, I think it's the reporter or somebody, and they're like, maybe it might have been the attorney, I don't remember which one, but he confronts somebody that had been in the episode, and he's like, why is it when I was a dirty cop with no evidence, I was front page news, but I'm absolved of guilt, and I'm buried, like, (laughs) I'm buried so, you know, in the middle of the newspaper that nobody's going to read. Right, yeah, (laughs) it's like, why why am I not now everybody's still going to believe that. And that's so true. It's like, mm-hmm. they're not going to report the good news. Right. They're and so just he, going to report the bad news. And so, and he's sitting there and like the whole time he, what's fascinating about his story is that he knows his unit's dirty, but you know, this is, this is the mid nineties. Right. And it's not, you know, with some, think about like black lives matter and, you know, and the whole like, um, confrontational, uh, rapport between the black community and police and they talk about the blue blue wall of silence and all of that and these are things we're dealing with right now and there you know there's movements to try to change these things because of perceived or actual uh corruption and 
uh, racial tension, um, generational prejudices, that sort of thing, institutional prejudices, institutional mm-hmm. racism within vast police uh, correctional networks across the United States, right? Right. In the 90s, they were talking about this, and it wasn't... Oh, yeah. And it wasn't new or, you know, like, it was just kind of there. But, like, th- think about what he's talking about. He's I'm right back here. Pick up where I'm talking about, like, the whole idea of um, that he is struggling with this idea of, like, I got to be loyal to the police. Right. My brothers, we are we are a unit. We are we are we are a fraternity. On the other hand, I didn't do anything and I shouldn't be persecuted. Yeah. Right back. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Kellerman has, like I said, a sense of, of pride. He, he wants others to believe he's a good police. And he also wants the people that he's surrounded with, but he's also not going to snitch. You know, that's one thing that he's not going to do. He, these people were taking bribes around him. Uh, and he didn't, he wasn't exposing them to it. They, they just offered him, Hey, you want, you want to, be on the take and he was like no i'm not uh i'm not going to do that Uh, he has higher values but then when he starts getting lumped in with those people he really start it starts messing with his head he can't number one he's drinking a lot so he's kellerman's a bit of an alcoholic uh, he gets into a relationship with uh, the the medical examiner it's not really the best relationship they aren't they found each other, I guess you would say. <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it. So as much comfort as they can find within each other, he's not, it's still not making him right. And he doesn't handle that relationship very well because of the stress that he's under in regards to this investigation. And G, we can talk about Lieutenant Giardello here, the, the guy that heads the homicide squad. He puts Kellerman on suspension. And again, that's another thing where Kellerman's like, look, I'm good. What else do I need to do other than to tell you that I'm good? I, I, I'm a good police. Keep me out there. Why are you suspending me for something I didn't even do? And it, it's for a completely different department. Yeah. So, you know, that begins, it, it all starts to snowball. It mm-hmm. just begins to snowball in his head. Well, he, uh, he thinks he's going to get drummed out of the service anyway. Right. Because he didn't, because he... You cannot be a party to corruption and say nothing. That in and of itself is a crime. Right. And that and that is one of the one of the things about this show in general is just how layered the text is. Yeah. You know, yeah. so people watch Law and Order. You know, I would say like Homicide and Law and Order are very similar shows. You have there a, was cast a crossover. Of, there was. Um <laughs> there was a uh it's a procedural show. These are how homicide investigations are handled, but you also have a cast of characters who are going through like personal dramas. Yeah. There, this is very much, I paid a lot more attention to the personal issues that were going on with the police. Yeah. Uh, I think, the, the, I, think the homi- I think the homicide th- things are interesting, but it's kind of the monster of the week kind of right. Deal. Right. Um, more of the, the through threads of like Kellerman and Pembleton and to a lesser extent that the guy that does the, the crime scene photos who's homeless they're like Brody, most of the season yeah. he's not homeless <laughs> I don't think he's homeless I think that man had a agenda but uh, I'll explain that here in a few but go ahead okay um the other characters really don't have much of a story 
like Yafakoto, who plays the captain, he, you know, Melissa Leo, the sergeant, um, and then the other black detective who, um, the lighter skinned one, who's the, the Meldrick, Meldrick Lewis, Kellerman's partner. Um, yeah, he, uh, if I remember correctly, he's, he's an editor in season five of The Wire. I love, and I love the way his, his line deliveries are some of the best, you know, because <laughs> I, I remember in season five of The Wire, he's just like, he says, like, he says a word. And I can't remember what the word is now. He was just like he acts like he's a dumbass. He was like, I was like, I went to Baltimore Public School. I don't know what that word means. You know? Man, I can't wait. I didn't know. So season five of The Wire, this where he shows. Like, he's one yeah. of my favorite actors on the show. I like that. I I like uh, Lewis. I think he, he has a smooth kind of jazzy delivery. Doesn't yes, it? he does. He is yeah. a very he is like one of the coolest cops on this show. I think he's been on it. I'm pretty sure he has at least been on it since the first season. I'd have to double mm-hmm. check that and make sure. But Lewis is definitely my favorite cop off of here. Yeah. Um, um, I like Pimbleton's intensity, but Lewis is like the coolest cat in the room. He really is. He's, really, <laughs> he's, he's the jazz detective. Anyway, back to Kellerman. Um, so the Kellerman is really, he, ju- he just wants to be a cop. And he did the he did the right thing by not taking the bribes, but he didn't do the right thing in reporting, but he did do the right thing in the culture of that environment. You know, you don't, you don't tell on your brothers. And it's just, it's a giant source of frustration for him. And then, and and then he's not, he's found not guilty. You know, he testifies. Oh man, he was about ready to lay it out there too. He was like, all right, you guys want it? Let's go. Yeah. And they're like, I'll poison the whole well. And it's so funny because like, (laughs) Because because the uh, the attorney doesn't go after it, and she even says after she's like, there was no need to burn the whole unit. It's if we got you right, you're, an innocent man did not get convict wrongly convicted. Justice is served well enough, and and he's almost like after you tortured me for this long, you know, right. after I agonized. I mean, he, imagine- well, it, it, he agonized. He really did all this to himself. To be honest, he was really agonizing over something that. You know, he, he just kept reading into things and just kept, like I said, it kept snowballing in his head and it kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So I, let's, I, start I the, let's start with the houseboat episode. Yeah. And here's the thing. You said you got up to see episode 17, right? Yeah. Okay. When we're done talking about the houseboat episode, I'm going to have to tell you what happens with Kellerman after this. Okay. And it is going to be a huge spoiler we're here to talk about the uh, the the show, so I, I hope you forgive me. But please, let's talk about the houseboat episode first. So basically, he's on this houseboat and he's like contemplating suicide, and Lewis comes to confront him, and they just end up talking through the whole episode. And it's it's a very there's an intensity to it, but it's also a sleepiness. It's a very weird episode. Um, almost, it's almost like it almost has the tenor of a horror movie. Yeah, we. I mean, how long did we stay on that houseboat with him? Because we're used to like scenes changing left and right in this show, right. and we were in that houseboat for probably a good twenty minutes. I think God, um, I felt longer. I like the whole episode. I know, man, and, and we don't immediately know that Kellerman's comp- contemplating this. I mean, we walk in there, Juliana's just leaving, Lewis is coming in, and she's like, "Yeah, he's in one of his moods." Oh, okay. Well, Kellerman. Yeah, I've seen Kellerman be in one of his moods. Well. It's gotten bad. He's in there. He's cleaning everything up. And then Lewis starts putting things together. He's a homicide detective. He can start. He, he can understand what's going on. He starts seeing that 
he's putting things in order, getting his house in order because he's going to potentially kill himself. And then it starts to get more intense. And, and Lewis is like, come on, let's go gra grab a drink. And every time it seems like he would get one more step of getting him to drop the gun or to go with him. He, Lewis just wants him out of there. He, come on with me. Let's get out of this boat. Let's get your mind off of things. Let's go do something. And Kellerman won't do it. And it just continues to escalate and escalate to where he has the gun in his hand. And, and it, it, there's like, I swear Lewis asked him like five times, give me the gun. He won't mm -hmm. do it. And he's just like kind of messing, you know, and it was very, very intense and very moving um, until you're like, is he going to kill himself? And you haven't had the opportunity. He mentions in those scenes about how one of his other partners killed himself. Uh, yeah, previous seasons, he there were there was a suicide um, from one of the previous detectives that he was known uh, that he was with. Uh, so it you know, there's a history there. And to see Lewis have to go through this um, and the, the delivery of the lines, the the <clears throat> you, you Lewis, like I said, is a cool cat in the room. And he's almost like the guy that you just don't really his home life ain't the greatest. We don't really spend a whole lot of time in his personal life, but you start to see Lewis become a character. And I started, that's where I was like, okay, yeah, this guy is, he's also got a history. Um, but yeah, I, I'll step back here, please. What do you have to say? Um, <clears throat> the, that whole like scene, uh, sorry that whole scene where he's sitting there and he's like holding the gun. And it's so funny because like one of the things that one of the things that um, they, I remember them like saying to each other is like, it's like Kellerman's like, just, just leave me alone. Just let me, he's struggling with this idea of even when you're not guilty, you know, it just feels like your life is over. You're forever branded this thing. Like you're forever wearing the scarlet letter, but right it's all based it's all a fiction it's all based on it's all based on accusation there's no proof to back it up he was absolved he didn't actually do anything you know the worst commit the, the worst of offense he committed was he didn't tell on his fellow officers which he was raised to not do anyway he was doing what was natural for that culture and then he feels like there's no there's no way up anymore I that he can't find the edge of the water and breathe again that he's just forever gonna drown and then he's like why live like this why why am I doing this and then there's his partner Lewis and he's sitting there telling him like I can't let you do that because then it you know how did I it's it's interesting because you know when we talk about relationships I think we we always tend to focus on romantic relationships but there are relationships just between people not sexual but they are at, but they are deeply like committed and enmeshed with each other that's one of the things they talk about like as being like detective partners i know how my partner thinks you know i know how my partner thinks i know what he's going to do we work hand in glove that's one of the major sources of contention between pendleton and bayless is that they have this rift and they are not working well together um, it's, they, they have a contentious relationship and then you have Lewis and Kellerman and Lewis is like, if you, if, if you do something, it looks like I failed you, right? Like you're not just hurting yourself as often said of people who commit suicide is that you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting the people around you. Right. 
obviously. And um, it, it's it's a very well, you know, as goofy as the Kellerman character can be at times, it's a very well acted uh, drama. You know, and ultimately yeah. he stops him from from doing it. But you you definitely feel like even though he's gonna, and I'm gonna pitch it back to you to talk about what happens to him after. But it, it kind of does feel like the beginning of the end for him, right? You know, inside the homicide unit, at least. So can't remember if it's that episode or the next episode where Lewis runs into him. You know, there this was a big event mm-hmm. between these two guys who have been partners. They're back in the squad room and Kellerman's sitting there looking at a paper. He's looking like he normally does, you know, and and uh, he says, I think he he's the one that brings it up. He's like, hey, Lewis, just to let you know, I'm OK. Yeah. And I don't know if he said he said he was seeking help or whatever, but he said, I'm OK. All right. So we're led to believe at that point that Kellerman's going to be all right. You know, he's, he's on the mend. So one of the things that happens, we talked about Luther Mahoney. Um, there is a few episodes where Luther Mahoney, he goes on a bit of, he's definitely the central drug kingpin figure. And uh, he, basically shoots one of his uh one of his assistants one of his mm-hmm. drug dealers out in the middle during a sting basically they were all watching luther mahoney do this drug deal they um they managed to get these guys together get the film crew out there and they filmed all of this happening and luther has no idea what's going on shoots this guy well then the police are like oh crap so they roll <laughs> in on luther and luther takes off right mm-hmm. luther gets to his penthouse Lewis is in pursuit, follows it, gets up to his penthouse, and it's Lewis versus Luther Mahoney in this penthouse room. And there is a fight that breaks out. And they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting. Um, Lewis almost, I, I think Lewis finally starts to get the upper hand somehow. And then Ma- Mahoney grabs Lewis's gun and has it pointed at Lewis. And just at that point in time, Kellerman... And Stivers show up and they draw their guns on Luther Mahoney. Luther Mahoney has his gun and then lowers it. And in about that time, I can't remember what the words are said, but Kellerman fires the gun and shoots him straight in the heart <laughs> and says, you know, basically you're, you're dead. So he kills this man who was lowering the gun right in front of Lewis and Stivers. So, the, the whole mental health aspect that we just talked about, yeah. it isn't taken care of. It <laughs> no. just continued in his head. And that's where me and my wife, when we're watching this and that happens, and I hate to take that away from you, but I remember that was the biggest oh shit moment that we've ever <laughs> had watching, you know, these so far in this series is Kellerman shooting this man when you're least expecting it. Like he just straight up executes him. Mm-hmm. And you're like, holy shit. So there is your Kellerman. It's not the finale because Kellerman sticks around. Now you have now you have three cops who have to make a decision as to how this story is going to go. They have to get their story straight. Are they going to tell G? Are they just going to write it up and everybody be on the same page that Luther had this gun raised? So that's kind of where we leave things off and going into season six is that that hangs over like a 
bad cloud most of the season. <laughs> Kellerman and Lewis have turning to look behind their backs while Stivers is not liking it. So it's yeah, it's very it's it's very interesting. Kellerman, as annoying as that character was, especially in a lot of the decisions that you see him make, where you're just like, "What are you doing, dude?" That right there added a huge dimension to a character that made me very it made me interested again as to what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, that's your that's your pretty much your finale right there. Well, I shouldn't say that 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 was the that was the big moment that happened in the season. The the way the season finale happens there's a two-parter and daniel baldwin's character bo felton ends up being found dead and so that's kind of where we bring back megan russert she comes back for an episode well two episodes and k uh sergeant k who had no, melissa leo had hardly anything to do this season <laughs> she finally gets her day in the sun and those in that two-parter as well uh, as they investigate, Actually, Melissa Lear was fantastic. If you ever have an opportunity, if you have showtime or you know, you can yar, uh, say the high fees, <laughs> yeah, you should definitely get a hold of both seasons of I'm Dying Up Here from Showtime. She plays like an old uh, club owner, she's phenomenal. Like, Melissa really? Leo, that's yeah, good, you know. And so, this this is the last couple of years between like I think 2015 and 2020. Uh, I think the show took place. I don't remember the years exactly, so I'm giving it a wide berth here. But you know, so she's significantly older than she is during, you know, in the 1990s, right? Where she's in homicide, but she she's like, I don't want to say underwhelming. That's not the word I'm I'm trying to use. So she's here. She's very straightforward. Um, she gives understated. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, that's she, actually going there. <laughs> she's she's a very understated performance. Whereas she's not so much overstated, I'm um, dying up here, but she's so forceful. She has such a forceful character. Um, right. You know, like she's almost like a mafia boss. And it's like, wow, what range on Melissa Leo that I did not expect. Right. You know, wow. You know, just watching her in Homicide season five. Yeah, she does. There, you got to think there, there's a cast of characters here. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of gonna go through some of my high points on the characters before we get out of here. But you know, there's a lot of characters. It isn't just yeah. Pimbleton and Bale. Not Richard Belzer at all. I, yeah, Munch. I mean, <laughs> there's a, a huge cast of characters. So to get everybody the time of day for on mm -hmm. this 22 episode season is tough to do. And I think you know, K Howard. Or, yeah, K Howard. She had her, she had a few moments throughout the season, but nothing where yeah. I would, when I was taking notes, you know, I was, she barely showed up uh, in yeah. my notes and, and she does show up obviously in the last two parts, but this is it at the end of the season. She's gone. You don't see her anymore. Uh, Brody's gone as well. Um, did you make it to the, okay, well, hold on. I, what else did you have there? I, before I get into my, some of my favorite episodes and, and my notes, just Richard, the Richard Belzer character always cracks me up because he's kind of, I don't think Richard Belzer so much as a good actor as he does a really good job of just being himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's uh, in fairly entertaining guys. It's kind of like Bill Maher or Dennis yeah. Miller. The, there are these like, you know, or like Lewis black and you know, another good example of this where, they have such an interesting personality uh, in the, of their own. They don't really have range as an actor. They can they can say their lines convincingly enough, but they are more just kind of extensions of themselves. It's so, so funny much. you mentioned Lewis Black because Lewis Black shows up in episode nineteen, and guess who he's talking to? 
that whole episode, he's talking to Munch. <laughs> so so. I, do, I do want to bring that up because you kept sending me pictures. My, it's funny. I watched a, I think I watched one of these the other day when we were prepping, my wife and I were cleaning up our bedroom to await new furniture. And, um, she sees like different actor shows. She was like, Jesus Christ, was everybody in Law and Order on this right. show? And I'm like, everybody, <laughs> there are shows like Oz, The Wire, The Corner, um, that there's just a whole East Coast contingency of actors where they're never in anything out of Hollywood. They're always in something East Coast. Mm -hmm. And they show up in all of these like HBO and Showtime and Cinemax shows. And they show up on stuff like Law and Order. Christ, who... <clears throat> I think every actor with a SAG card has been on <laughs> a, a David Simon production or Law and right. Order of some sort. Right. It is it is pretty amazing. And so, like, you would send me pictures, like, you'd get to an episode, like, hey, I know that guy. And, like, yeah, these are all people from The Wire and shit or Law and Order or right. something. You know. It's Fat John Cena. Yep. <laughs> Fat John Cena. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um he's been in a bunch of stuff that dude wow oh, wow you know it's like oh hollywood's only for like the, the fit and beautiful no there's some ugly trollish motherfuckers too oh, you yeah. know but they, they need them for stuff like this they need to look at what people look like real people right um so I, I just wanted to say that i like i said there are no major through threads there's, there's a couple of things having to do with like with police and again homicide is largely a procedural drama you know a homicide has been committed. Like, there's a really, really great episode, actually. I did want to talk about this. Um, it's one of the ones I watched recently. We have a uh, domestic abuse that turns into a murder. And uh, Bayless struggles with dead children. And he's not oh, yeah. looking at That's the case one of his first cases. Yeah. And they're questioning the mom. And the mom's like, I didn't do anything. And Bayless is really aggressive with her to the point where she's like, uh, can I have a lawyer? Like, I, I don't want to be in here with you anymore. But then, you know, Andre Brower gets rid of Bayless and he comes back and he talks to her and she just gives it up immediately. Right. And that, again, shows you <laughs> Pimbledon and Bayless, uh, you know, it was mm. and that's what sucks. I think it's in this in this season where Pimbledon's or Bayless is like, I don't want to be your partner anymore. Yes, that is the season. Oh, yeah, oh my wow. God. Right after the therapy thing, he invites him over for pasta. And then like the next day, Bayless is like, we're still friends, right? He's like, yeah, no. <laughs> like, I don't want to do anything else with you. So like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's like, right. It, it's such um it's such rich performances and writing in this. And it's so weird because like who talks about homicide? Like no one's gonna listen to this episode. Who <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cares? Yeah. <laughs> I Bayless has an interesting arc this season. Uh we, we learn about how he I think there was a a few things where Pimbleton was giving him a hard time about how he was homophobic at mm -hmm. one point. Um, and then we start to learn that Bayless was abused as a kid yeah. by his uncle. Um, by the end of the season, Bayless is not showing up for work. And you're like, what is going on with Bayless? And Pimbleton's doing the same thing. He's like, what is going on with Bayless? And Pimbleton mm -hmm. follows him and finds out that he's taking care of his uncle. He's went and showed him uh, he, he went and uh, went to his uncle's house and he confronted his uncle uh, and he just there's a really, really, really powerful line that he says where he looks at his uncle, who is, by the way, a decrepit old man now who is, I mean, having a hard time just functioning, really. Uh, mm -hmm. It's amazing. This guy is living on his own and he sits he walks in the house. He sits down 
And he looks at him. He says, tell me where I put my hate. <laughs> and I was like, fuck. That's like a, like a metal line, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's where you end it, too. And you're like, wow. And he's trying like hate, to work. It feels you. like a hate breed lyric. <laughs> Tell me where I put my hate. And that's where you end things. And I don't even know if the old man says anything at all to him in the times that you see him. You just, mm -hmm. you didn't start to see that he's taking care of him. But anyway, um, so Bayless has a pretty interesting arc. Uh, then, I mean, Sergeant K, we talked about that. J.H. Brody, I'll go ahead and throw this out there. I said it was planned. I don't think he's homeless. He's okay. he's doing. Did you get to the episode where he's doing the documentary and showing everybody? Oh my god, that's so funny that episode. <laughs> so Brody's based off of David Simon. Apparently, okay. that is uh, that is actually who that character is based off of. But I honestly think it was his plan all along to stay at everybody's house so he could get footage of them. Mm -hmm. And he was like, "Hey, can I stay at your house?" And he kept staying at everybody else's house. And you're like, "Man, this poor guy." But and then you realize squad room. Yeah, <laughs> then you realize he's doing this just to get footage for his documentary this whole time. What a brilliant, brilliant but, man. Okay, but even past that episode, he was so like, you know, I want to say it's a couple episodes later after he's gone into everyone else's home. They're like, enough with you already. Is like he he can't afford a place. And that's why he's living in like the, the precinct. And right. I think they finally convinced him to get roommates. And that's about where I left it. It's funny because nobody everybody's kicked him out lewis blames yeah. him for breaking up his marriage or at least being a, a catalyst for what happened um it, you know Kay is like oh, hey i want to stay with uh, you can stay over here and he's like got this sense of honor no but it's so funny because the one person that wants him to stay is munch and brody's like nah I, i'm okay he stays with him one time and he's like i'm not staying with you anymore and munch well, is I like, think, like wasn't munch like mean to him well, Munch is like, what'd you do? Look in the medicine cabinet? And you, what does Munch have in the medicine cabinet that's going to destroy that relationship? Right. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. Um, so Juliana Cox, the medical examiner, showing up mm -hmm. here for a cup of coffee, if you will, because she's going to be gone soon. <laughs> okay. She, Yeah, she shows up and she, I think, is, I don't know, I think she might go into the next season, but she's going to be gone. Um, and she's got the relationship with Kellerman. Um, it's It's neat to see her show up. Uh, D.A. Danvers, I think is his name, District Attorney Danvers. He's mm -hmm. the uh, attorney that uh, you see. You, he shows up infrequently, but he does get his own starring episode when his soon-to-be wife gets killed, and he doesn't want Pimbleton to handle the case because mm -hmm. he's worried that he's mentally unable to do so. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, we talked about Kellerman, Lewis, uh, Luther Mahoney. We talked about him. So really the only thing, oh, well, I mean, at the end of the season with the two-parter, we get Gardy comes back. I talked about him being a beat cop. Gardy comes back, and he is going to be a mainstay for season six and seven. Um, Falzone shows up, and I don't know if Callie or, um, oh, my goodness, Ballard shows up at the end of this season or not, but uh, we can expect her next season for sure. The big, the big thing at the very end, like how mm -hmm. they end the season, is G comes in as like, Guys, guys, I want to let you know we just got some uh, the word down from Barnfather and whatever the heck. Uh, the, we're going to be on rotation. So every three months, the cops of Homicide. Now, why they did this, I I don't know. Maybe it's just to, so they could explain some of the cast maybe changing. I, I don't know. But they were like, 
the, the detectives were going to be tr- on rotation to different departments throughout the police precinct. So you're a homicide detective. You could be working robbery the next three months. And then three months after that, you could be doing uh, sexual crimes or something like that. So that's kind of like where the big cliffhanger was. So anything else before I get into my, my, my favorite episodes? Go ahead. All right. You sure? No, I'm good. You ready? You ready? He's ready. All right. This has been a long night. Go. <laughs> personal top episodes of the season okay now i got four i got four of them here i I wanted to keep it three but i want to go for chronological order episode seven uh this is where this is called the heart of a saturday night and this is where a a grief support group gets together and talks about their tragedies that occurred and each one tells a story that involves the homicide unit so i thought it was a neat way to tell a story plus at the very end uh, the medical ex- uh, examiner, Juliana Cox, walks in at the end of the therapy, and we find out that she was actually her dad was a victim. We find out that her dad died at one point in this season, and then we learned that he was actually murdered. Uh, so that was that was a neat way to tell the story. Then episode eleven, which was the documentary, we kind of talked about that. Uh, that has the meta moment that I told Mark about, where they're filming the documentary and they run into a film crew and Barry Levinson out. In the- <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So it, I thought that was really cool. Um, Have a conscience is episode 13. This is the boat scene. Uh, so that is clearly in my, you know, that was going to make top three. Um, and then episode 19 was the Holy shit moment where Mahoney gets shot. Uh, and that's where you start to learn that Mike Kellerman is not all right. Mm-hmm. He, no matter what he says, he is not all right. And he just murdered a man. Uh, so guest stars, here we go. Elijah Wood, episode eight, which yes. also, yeah, also. I, I watched that at home. I was watching that and, um, my, I, I yelled out to my wife. I'm like, Oh my God, Frodo's in this. <laughs> uh, it also has one of the more funny moments of the homicide TV show where there's a exchange between Bayless and Meldrick. So, uh, Elijah Wood's character is playing this really like smart son of a judge, if I remember right. And he's like trying yeah. to outwit them. And there's an exchange between Bayless and Meldrick uh, Lewis where Bayless says, uh, this kid thinks he's smarter than us, uh, than us. And Meldrick says, who's to say he's not. And in that very moment, when he turns around, he runs smack dab into Bayless, obviously under, you know, underlining the fact that, yeah, they're not as smart. That guy, that kid is definitely smarter than those two. Uh, so I love that part. Uh, Makai Pfeiffer shows up as Junior Bunk. And I will tell you, you remember that Junior Bunk. He's going to be, I don't know if you've got to him yet, but uh, he's uh, he's definitely going to be a character that we will see again soon. Eric Stoltz uh, is one of Kellerman's brothers. Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, he was definitely... And episode 15, Neil Patrick Harris is in episode 16. What a douchebag he plays. Have, <laughs> did you happen to, I, I know you still listen to the podcast just as a fan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You listen to my shows. Did right. you hear, did you listen to the review Jason and I did of Shaft and Shaft 2000? No, not yet. No. Okay. Oh my goodness. So keep this in mind when you do. Uh, Christian Bale's character in Shaft, Doogie Hauser in okay. homicide same deal <laughs> Just the same level of douchiness douche oh wow so good uh, i'll remember that i will remember that 
Uh, Edie Falco shows up in episode 18. Not a very uh, big part, but yeah, there's Edie Jacket. Falco nonetheless. That's right. And like I said, Lewis Black shows up in episode 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, guest stars galore. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to mention was the music that mm-hmm. is throughout these episodes. I, I didn't write down everything that I heard, but there was quite a few things that were recognizable. Uh, specifically, I think there was a prison riot episode that I wrote down. Uh, they opened it up with a soul coughing song. And whenever I hear soul coughing, uh, I'm a, I'm a fan. So that's all I had for season five of homicide, man. It was, it was a lot of, I'm already into season seven. That's how much fun I'm having with this. I've got notes all the way up to season seven, yeah, but I've got to wait a month to do man. season you, six. You were like sending me all this stuff. I'm like, dude, I haven't even begun to watch this yet. <laughs> Please calm uh, the fuck down. We will be back on May 18th for Homicide Life on the Street season six. Uh, we will be back on June 15th for Homicide Life on the Street season seven. And then we are finally done with Homicide. Uh, on July 13th is The Corner, the six episode miniseries that was on HBO. which was kind of a prequel to The Wire, kind of, sort of. Okay. Um, the Wires season one, August 17th. Wire season two, September 14th. The Wire season three, uh, the best season, I think most people would agree. Uh, October 12th. Uh, the Wire, uh, the Wire season four, November 16th. And then, uh, December will spend Christmas with us, December 14th. With the wire season five and then we are into next year january 20 uh, january 2023 january 18th it'll be myself we'll have a special guest on this one andrew graham will be joining us oh as he does for all the military things we do here we'll be talking generation kill um february 23rd we start looking at treme so that's season one february 15th um, i will be gone because my family drives me crazy uh, on a Bahamas cruise. I know. It's like, well, he's going on a Bahamas cruise and he's complaining. You ever been on vacation with my family? You'd complain too. Um, <laughs> Folks, I don't. I haven't taken a vacation for years because I had kids. Okay, do you want to go? <laughs> you want to go with uh, my wife and kids? Uh, kids. I, I said, no, I, I specifically don't do vacations because I had kids. Mark. Do you want to trade? Do you want to swap? You want to go be with my family and I'll go be a monogamous husband to your wife? I'm afraid that I'm going to have to pass, sir. I appreciate the offer. Thank you very much. If you want to go to the Bahamas, I'm just saying, so that I don't have to. Very tempting. My goodness, it's going to be, it'd probably be very pretty. Just look forward to the sights you get to see out there. It's going to be nice. If it goes like any of my last cruises, the sight's going to be the bottom of a toilet bowl as I'm vomiting. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I told everyone this time, I'm just like, if I get sick on one more fucking cruise, I'm killing everybody. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i mean i could just not go on a cruise again but no i think murder is the appropriate response yeah that's fine yeah we, we tried it again murder is yeah. the only next step logical logical yeah. next step <laughs> the fbi agent currently listening to this podcast um <laughs> so suspect number one if anything goes wrong just, i'll own that that's fine the signs were um, there <laughs> tired of getting the norwalk virus god damn it um anyway treme season speaking of the norwalk virus treme season two march 22nd Season three, April 12th. Season 17, we do Show Me a Hero, which was another miniseries, and it's phenomenal, by the way. It's really, really good. Good, 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 good. The Deuce, season one, June 14th. 
uh, The Deuce Season 2, Ju- July 12th. The Deuce Season 3, July, duh, yeah, August 16th, duh. August 16th. The Plot Against America, um, September 13th. And I think that's the last one. Yeah, that's that's it. So we are <laughs> we plan to do these crazy enough. We plan to do these all the way until September of next year because I don't schedule ahead or anything. <laughs> I, well, you know, I don't mind going month by month. These are nice, uh, nicely spaced. We're not trying to cram a season into a week. No. You know, one month uh, per season is great. I, I had, yeah. I'm finding plenty of time apparently to cram these in if I'm already at two seasons ahead. So, yeah, but. Yeah, I had a good time, man. I'm glad uh, I'm I, I you know get out there, enjoy the rest of these episodes, finish out the season, mm-hmm. and then that way you'd be ready for season six because there oh, are some I'll, definite, definite now holdovers. Have, now I don't have to pay that close attention. I can just have it on the background while I'm building web pages and stuff. That's that's so, right. Uh, all right. As far as with the rest of what we're doing tomorrow, myself and Alexis Hano will be reviewing Res- Resident Alien. In theory, I'm doing boxing Saturday night. Um, I'm gonna be doing the Errol Spencer Daniel Ugas fight. Assuming I'm home in time, I might be going out that night. Um, next week is Easter, and we'll have a refreshing of our hop alternative commentary that I did with my kids. That was wildly popular for some reason. Um, we'll Animation. Re- <laughs> I guess. We'll have a re-airing of our Long Road to Ruin from Madagascar. Um, and then, oh, oh just, just so my I asked my son, like, we did the hop thing for Easter last year, and we were kind of... We, we went for a little clip there where we were doing stuff that was just holiday oriented, just me and the kids. Like we did the three Christmas cartoons. We did hop. We did a nightmare before Christmas. And I asked my son, like, do you want to do something for Easter this year? And he was like, we have to, we have to, he's a good boy. <laughs> so we're going to do, do you remember the big bomb that was Ben Hur 2016? Ooh, I remember hearing about it, but I, I don't, yeah. It like I'm it was, wasn't it's, good. It's, historically financially on uh, uh yes. financially bombed like yeah. that made headlines so you're gonna, just, you're you're gonna make your son do this one yeah oh boy it's easter and you watch ben-hur on easter do you know that All do you right. know that jesse i had no idea dude google it google I will. easter movies ben-hur is right on there okay i believe you so I mean, like, what are we supposed to do? Like, you know, the Guardians movie, you know, with the with Peter Rabbit and Santa Claus and shit. How well, Peter Rabbit, maybe. I, I, I this is either going to make or break your boy. Why do you? He's going to be Jesus? done. He's going to be done with podcasting after that. He's like, this you, is horrible. Why do you hate Jesus? <laughs> I don't equate the two, sir. <laughs> 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 don't you understand that easter is a celebration of the time jesus came off the cross and gave away gave all the children chocolate I, eggs been her okay whatever <laughs> it's on the list i'm gonna start, right. i'm gonna inundate you tomorrow with lists really yes oh don't do that i'm gonna send you list after list after list that has been her as an easter movie i've never muted a conversation faster than after we get off this podcast that's a lie um (laughs) anyway so my son and i will be doing the ben her alternative commentary then we'll have a re-airing of how to train your dragon 2 plus uh myself and sean comer are going to be doing um he's making his monthly visit to the rattling broadcasting network the month the the one monthly visit that i allow him to have now (laughs) uh We'll be doing Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, which is based on a French comic. Did you know that 
Mr. Big Time Comic Guy. I think guy. I've heard of that. I'm getting that confused with. Isn't there something like Valeria and the Sky Captain? No, nah, never mind. You're you're That's... like mixing up way different titles. Uh, so yes, this call Valerian... me Frank Hamilton. <laughs> Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets was based on a French comic. John Carter is based on, I believe, a series of science fiction novels. Yes. And Barbarella is also based on based a, on a clutch song. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good try. Uh, I like your enthusiasm. Based on a French comic, sir. Oh, so okay. You, you see the theme here? Ah, I do. Wee wee. Wee wee. Anyway. Uh, so that's Monday night. And then uh, Tuesday, we'll have a re-airing of Kung Fu Panda 3, plus our review of Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore with Amber and Jason Teasley. We'll have a re-airing of the Deepwater Horizon movie celebrating, or not celebrating, but marking the anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon um, disaster. Do you remember that? During the Obama years? Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's some, that's some serious stuff. Um, at night, we'll be reviewing Ghost, and I will not be sending it to Facebook because I don't want it blocked again. And not Facebook, uh, YouTube. Bastards. It's, our video is still blocked, goddammit. Still blocked. Still, you know, normally they release the block in like two days. We're still blocked for whatever the reasons are. Wow. Um, so I think we can go back to live streaming, I was told. I just didn't feel like doing it tonight. And then Thursday, myself and Alexis Hanna will be reviewing Green Eggs and Ham in the morning. And then at night, uh, this is actually the next thing I got to watch. Myself and David Wright will be reviewing uh, Star Trek Lower Decks. So that's everything in the Rattle and Broadcasting Network. Jesse, I hear you got a big time comic podcast. Big time, ladies and gentlemen. It's big time. So, hey, Cosmic Carnage, I think, released there this past week. It sure did, Ollie. Now you go check that out. It's the Carnage symbiote getting on to the Silver Surfer. I mean, how could you not want to listen to the chaos that would actually happen in that comic? Well, I'll tell you. It's me, it's Dean Compton, it's Derry Waite. We're talking about it. Go check that out. Uh, on the recording schedule, it looks like I have listed here, we're going to be talking uh, some single-issue comics again. Me and Chris Armstrong jumping back into the Unspoken Issues bandwagon, uh, doing Extreme Justice number zero. So that should be happening pretty soon. We are also recording for future air our uh, episode of Tripped Up Trivia regarding magic. That's right. Not Magic the Gathering, just magic in film, magic in print, and magic in video. Well, not video games. In games, I should say. Uh, so we have four guests lined up for that. We are good to go. We're going to have a good time. That's going to be airing here pretty soon. Recording there this coming Saturday. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, on the Source Material Comics podcast, uh, I know we just dropped some fun stuff where I talked about a Doom comic that came out in 1996. It was the most nonsensical, goofy thing that I've read in quite a while. Uh, but uh, if you have the opportunity, go check that out. That is on the Source Material Comics podcast feed. All of those unspoken issues and the Source Material Comics podcast uh, are on that feed. I think that's it. I don't really have anything else, Mark Radlich. I'm ready to get out of here if you are, sir. No, let's talk longer and see what else goes wrong in my life tonight. Uh, no, um, or let's just get out of here. And record it. <laughs> be well, be safe, and behave. 